the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you this week from Soyer in Mallorca, sometime home of sometime podcast maestro Rob Hatch. And I learned today, tragically, we're one of two Mallorcans to win the Volta Catalunya. Antonio Helabert lost his life in a car accident in 1956. The Volta Catalunya currently happening just across the Med, of course. My name is Daniel Freeber and I'm the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we're going to tear off three strips of focaccia and mop up the last flex at the bottom of the proverbial Milan San Remo pesto jar. Helping me to do that are two men who rode La Classicissima at the weekend, or at least two slightly different versions thereof. One completing the 294 kilometers in just under six and a half hours, having placed his AG Tour Citroën leader Benoit Cosnefroy at the bottom of the Poggio like a master jeweler setting the five carat diamond in an heiress's engagement ring. The other handily bypassing the first 194 kilometer boring bit, ordering an antipasto primo secondo and dolce at the feed zone and spending longer than the five minutes, 38 seconds it took Mathieu van der Poel to climb the Poggio, posing for pictures in the phone box at the top to create what he proudly informed me yesterday was our best performing Instagram post of the year so far. It is respectively the the Motown maestro, lucky Larry Warbass, and our very own Lionel Burney. You can guess, you listeners can guess which one was which in those descriptions. How are you both, how are you both (laughs) recovering from your respective efforts? Did you... Did you stop in the phone box, Larry? That's the most important thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't see the phone box, no. You didn't even see it. <laughs> shocking, shocking. Um, Lionel, it was a very... No. Well, you told me it was a very... Um, it was a very popular Instagram post of you in the phone box. Um, but how are you recovering from your efforts in Sam Raymond at the weekend? I'm, I'm, I'm fully recovered apart from a, a slight... Uh, well, I'm, I'm in a house with... Uh, with someone who's suffering from COVID. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I don't catch COVID. I felt pretty rough yesterday, to be honest, but that's just the way it is. This this winter seems to be just one illness after another. I must admit, I do wonder how pro riders, pro athletes of any kind with young children manage because your immune system just seems to take a hammering. They go through nursery school and catch every single bug going. If I was a pro rider, I'd, I'd probably go and live in Tenerife and keep away from the bugs and germs. Larry, of course, you don't have children, do you? But you have a dog, Larry. I must make a guilty confession, Larry. I saw your dog um, on the Saturday, uh, Paranese. I saw it at the top of the mountain. Um, your dog and your girlfriend were waiting for you at the finish. They were both in AG2 yeah. kit, weren't they? And I didn't stop mm-hmm. to, to introduce myself to either um, the dog or your oh, girlfriend, and partly because I, I get, because I, I'm, not a dog, <laughs> I'm not a dog person, I always feel a bit uneasy around uh. people who really love dogs because they can kind of see the sort of, uh, in my case, the total indifference terror towards- in Well, there's, there's yeah, the terror yeah. and the total indifference. <laughs> and I always, there's a kind of deflation. I can see how deflated they are when you don't share yeah. their love for dogs. I mean, he's a dog for not dog people. Like, even if you don't like dogs, you like Blanco. He's just the chillest, coolest dog. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, Larry, you're right. You would have liked him if you met him. Well, that that day where we were <laughs> at the Col La Cuyol um, in the Mercantor Alps, and yeah. you're in the Mercantor Alps at the moment because you're up at altitude, aren't you, in Isola 2000? I am, yeah. So not too far away from you that stage. Uh, in 
Oh no, it's actually it's pretty nice. It's beautiful blue skies. It's it's really nice up here right now, so that's good. Uh, Lionel, so, have I ever told my Isla, my Charlie Gore Isla two thousand story on the podcast? It's not a very good story. It's I, I was when I graduated from university in two thousand and three. Um, I was trekking across the Alps, and I spent a couple of days at Isla two thousand. I saw Charlie Gore, and oh, I was convinced I saw Charlie Gore anyway. And um, I don't know who Charlie Gore is. You don't know who Charlie Gore is. Winner of <laughs> oh, the sorry. 1950s. He was gone. Gone. Well, well, he was nicknamed the Angel of the Mountains. He won the 1958 Tour de France, and uh, one of the kind of for anyone who got into cycling in the 50s, uh, like my dad, he was kind of the the poster boy for some reason. Kind of um, captured everything that European cycling was you know it was kind of romantic compared to the kind of the the metronomic jacon yeah and this was quite a big deal me seeing charlie gore larry because charlie gore became a mythical figure not least because there was this sort of it was a bit of an urban legend about him having completely disappeared and become literally a hermit a recluse and gone to live in a cabin in the forests of the ardennes in luxembourg where he was from um so you know me i thought you were gonna say in a cabin in isola 2000 well which yeah. is probably a good place to be before we get on with the news roundup the other thing i remember i always think of when i think of isola 2000 is the ibexes they were fantastic there were a lot of ibexes up there just above isola on the codla lombard mm. yeah there are it's actually cool i was here in the summer and did like a little backpacking tour uh with my girlfriend and we saw like some crazy wildlife and ibex and it was really cool lionel shall i crack on with the news roundup yeah do it and um, we'll start with sort of off the bike stuff this week um a few weeks ago we featured an interview with the former australian rider alan piper who helped guide tade pogaccia to tour de france victory in 2020 as a direct sportif with uae but since withdrawn from that role due to health issues, the reason we spoke to Alan at the time was that he and UAE had seemingly found an agreement for him to return to the team in a consultancy role this year. However, we've learned in the last couple of days that will not now happen. The team released a statement quoting Piper. He said he thanked Mauro Gennetti, the team manager in UAE, for trying to reincorporate him into the squad. But my vision of the collaboration was different from those of all my visions of the collaboration were different from those of the team. Uh, he wished the team all the best going forward. Um, it seems as though it was pretty sort of amicable agreement that they weren't going to work together, but that's a bit of a shame, um, isn't it, chaps? I think not least because well, we know about Alan Piper's health problems over the last couple of years and um, seemed like a, a happy, uh, well, a happy re-conciliation re um, Another bit of news in brief, something we may well revisit in the Giro d'Italia in a few weeks. The two-time Giro champion Beppe Saroni has reignited his four-decade-long feud with Francesco Moser by blasting Moser. From, Larry, do you know who Francesco Moser and Giuseppe Saroni are? Yeah, him okay. I know, yeah. He's a winemaker, right? There, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. By blasting <laughs> Moser in an interview with Il Corriere della Sera, um, Perhaps no, most notably, Saroni said that Moser had a monopoly on the blood transfusions administered by Prof, um, Professor Francesco Conconi in the 80s, which were legal at the time, but said Saroni were a gateway to many of the problems which blighted cycling later. In spite of their rivalry, Saroni admitted that he still buys wine from Moser's cantina and that it's excellent. 
He added, though, that he never looks closely at the bill, although he doubts Moser gives him a discount. <laughs> this has got. This was like a. This was like a nice warm blanket. This story because there's less and less of this in cycling. Moser um, Saroni is one of the great old Italian beefs, the great feuds. I thought this would be a good. This would be a, a good cue to ask Larry about. Are there any feuds, Larry? Are there any beefs that we don't know about that we really should know about? This is your opportunity to lift the lid. Um, Do you have honestly, any feuds? Oh, uh, me? Just Hugh Carthy. <laughs> oh, yes, we know <laughs> about that one. You guys know that one already. No, I mean, uh, I'd have to think about it. I'm okay. not really maybe, sure. Well, maybe, uh, we'll maybe I mean, come there are probably a few that exist. But, uh, but yeah, usually it's like one guy has a lot of feuds with a lot of guys, mm. you know. It's not like uh, individuals a lot of times. But, but yeah. I did think... Well, let's talk... Well, I did think it was, on, I did think it was on, interesting, on. you know, the, the, the footage of the aftermath of Milano San Remo and the, the three riders from the podium all squeezed onto that much yes. too small sofa. And um, it was Van Aert went up first to go onto the podium. They'd all sat there in a kind of awkward silence, like, uh, you know strangers packed onto a commuter train or something and trying not to touch thighs together no eye contact and then when Van Aert went up to the podium suddenly Ganna and Van der Poel were you know warm and you know they moved apart a little bit to be more comfortable on the sofa but started to engage in conversation and I think you know this rivalry between Van der Poel and Van Aert is uh, very well understood you know they've been going head to head since they were children really haven't they and I think there was a a piece that um Pete Cousins, our colleague, wrote this week just talking about that rivalry. And one of them said, uh, basically, that the, the rivalry is such that they can't really be friends. And I kind of get that. You know, they're going up against each other. They've got to try and bury each other on the road. They can certainly respect each other. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure they're not going to be dinner party guests until after uh, they've retired, maybe. No. No, I mean, it's fairly thin gruel, though, that rivalry, I would yeah. say, compared to Moser and Saroni. As I said, hopefully we'll revisit this in the Giro d'Italia because it is a great story that we probably haven't done enough on over the years. Um, should we talk about some racing? There have been there were three French Cup races, or there have been in the last few days. The GP Dunant last Wednesday, the Classic Loire Atlantique, and the GP Cholet, Pays de la Loire, at the weekend. Those three races were won respectively by Juan Sebastian Molano of UAE, Axel Zangler of Cofidis and Lawrence, Lawrence Pithy. I was tempted to pronounce that in a French way, but he's, he's a New Zealander um, and he rides for uh, Kupama. Pity is uh, well, he's 20 years old and he was also second the previous day. Larry, French Cup, um, big deal for French teams, not a big deal at all for a lot of fans that follow cycling um how, how important is the french cup for ag2r citroen yeah i mean i think it's pretty important you know like uh they used to win it like almost every year and you know it was always kind of a big deal if they could win it um i know it's like big for the sponsor and stuff just like there's something in french teams where it's like it's really important to be the best french team and so if you win the french cup then you know you're kind of like the best French team, right? So it used to be um, huge for Cofidis <clears throat> back 10, 15 years ago. It was almost their biggest objective of the season. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you can't win big World Tour races, you might as well try to win the French Cup. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Biggest uh, feud inside. Like I mean, Larry you know, Warbus versus, like... versus Cofidis is the feud no, that no, we should no, be talking no, about. No. 
I mean, it's not the same coffees as it used to be. They've, you know, definitely grown a lot. But, um, you know, I don't know. It is. It's funny because, like, before you're on a French team, you're just like, what are these races? You never even heard of them before, you know? And then, uh, then like, on the team, they're, like, important big races, you know? So it's, like, to get, like, on the the French races and stuff is, like, you know, it's tough. So, um, so yeah, for our team, it's quite important. And I think it's just, you know, uh, any time racing at home is always important for the team. We should also mention another one-day race that happened last week, and that was Nokara Cursa. Uh, Lotta Kopecky won the women's race there. Tim Merlia was the best of the men. Speaking of women's racing, moving to the weekend last weekend, that is the Tour de uh, Normandie was won by a Breton, I believe, uh, Cédrine Kerbaol. By one second, she won from her compatriot Gladys Verhulst. Two significant men's stage races are happening at the moment. The Settimana Copia Bartali in central Italy and the aforementioned Volta Catalunya, aka Spain's oldest stage race, first ridden in 1911. In Copia Bartali, uh, Remy Cavagna won stage one after a 32 kilometer solo break, but has lost the leader's jersey to his teammate Mauro Schmidt today. Schmidt was second on stage two behind your compatriot Larry, Sean Quinn. In Catalonia, stage one was roglified. I think you all know what that means. Well, stage two saw a roglicide. Primoz finishing second. Or you could say that Giulio Ciccone roglified him. At the time of recording today, stage three has just concluded atop La Molina. And guess what? Rog got Remco-sized. Did you see that, chaps? Were you watching? And uh, I, I, I turned I, it on when you told me that you were watching <laughs> the final. So, yeah. Well, an appetite. I watched the last five k or something. Yeah, it's a sort of foretaste of the. It's been billed, hasn't it, as a bit of a dress rehearsal for the Giro d'Italia, and they're certainly. Well, Remco and Roglic are both going to the Giro. They will both be favourites, and they look pretty closely matched at the moment. I would say, although I think today was maybe indicative of what we've seen so far. Evan Paul looks slightly stronger. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting, that, isn't it? In a race where there'll be time bonuses and plenty of opportunities on those sorts of finishes, the, the pair of them um, going head-to-head. Evenepoel, obviously, quicker today and, uh, well, just failed to take the leader's jersey. I think Roglic has kept the leader's jersey, but they're tied on time. So, oh, Well, it was a cock-up, wasn't it, by Remco, because he celebrated, he, he lost at least two seconds with his celebration. He sat up and saluted the crowd at least 50 metres before the line, I would say. But there's uh, plenty of opportunities for more uh, showdown between Rog and Remco uh, later on this week. The thing that was interesting for me about Just today lost. was to see uh, Richard yeah. Carapaz in the early break. Yeah, Carapaz had lost he'd lost time, didn't he, on the, on stage two, the mountaintop finish. Um, there were a couple of, a couple of riders... Well, well off the pace. Egan Bernal got dropped fairly early on stage two as well, but climbed pretty creditably nonetheless. Finished about two minutes down. He's coming back from knee injury, of course. Um, but yeah, it's always. I mean, it's a it's a big old. It's 
uh, a tough stage race, isn't it? The Volta Catalunya. And for some riders, these are the first long climbs that they've done all season. There are always some big casualties in that first mountaintop finish. I mean, the others, for example, um, well, there, there have been other significant time losses by pre-race favourites. For example, Adam Yates in the first stage, but he was involved in a really nasty crash, which I should also mention cost... Uh, Dario Cataldo of Trek Segafredo, uh, broken elbow, I think it was, um, or it might have been multiple broken bones. So we wish him all the best. Yeah, I mean, this is Carapaz's first stage race of the season as well, remember? I mean, he won the Ecuadorian Road Race Championships. His first race in Europe was Milano Torino last week. And yeah, first stage race of the season. His eyes will be very much on the summer, the Dauphinate, the Tour de France. So just an early hit out for him, I guess, a stretch of the legs. But it's, it's good to see riders of that stature in an early break like that. I thought it, it added a bit more to um, to the early hours of, of my double screening today with uh, the Brugge de Panna Classic on one screen and uh, Catalonia on the other. I mean, this is traditionally the busiest week of the cycling season, isn't it? It's where... Uh, the, the the kind of the twin lanes start to merge together. All eyes will be on the cobbled classics from this point on. Well, I was about to say, Lionel, you are our de facto cobbled classics correspondent. Mm. Can you tell us briefly what happened in Depana? I can. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was uh, it, it was a really good race. I think the, the the we'll talk about this in the third part with Larry. But the, I'm not a big fan of that circuit. I think it's a dangerous course. It's uh, the only one of those Flemish classics, uh, the major ones in the World Tour, I think, that's not part of Flanders classics. And the course has kind of evolved from the days when this was a three-day stage race. Now it's a one-day race on a kind of glorified Kermes circuit. I mean, I've described it variously in the past as a as a bit like a sort of bumper car um, circuit at the fairground. Some of the the street furniture is ridiculous uh, that left-hand turn on the finishing circuit on the cobbles across that narrow bridge and then onto more cobbles gives me the heebie-jeebies every time uh, oddly because the weather was bad and the wind was up and there were crosswinds and it split into pieces it actually made it safer I think for the majority of riders because it wasn't 150 riders all trying to um, get to the front uh, from quite a long way out it split up into small groups and that also made it a much better race and uh, well the shakedown came 16 kilometers from the finish when Jasper Philipson who's one of the one of a number of very fast finishers in that group of well originally it was about 35 riders and then it split down to 16 or 18 riders but Philipson sort of ghosted off the front he had Olaf Koy of Jumbo Visma on his wheel and the Sudal Quickstep rider who marked him was Yves Lampart uh, Sudal Quickstep had a number of riders they were the best represented in that group of 18 uh, but Fabio Jakobsen was not across in that group suboptimal for Sudal Quickstep because Lampart was never going to beat Philipson or Koy in a sprint so we had this curious sight of the Sudal Quickstep riders chasing a group with their own teammate in it. Uh, normally, the rule is you don't chase when you've got a teammate in the break, but with Lampart having little um, little chance really of beating Philipson in the sprint, it made sense for Sudal Quickstep to try and close the gap. They couldn't. Uh, the other rider in that front quartet was Frederick Frison's Lotto Destiny. He tried a couple of moves to uh, pull a fast one at the finish but was unsuccessful and uh, well Philipson finished it off in the sprint quite impressive uh, by the Alpecin de Koenig rider because he did make that move happen he didn't just sit in and wait for the sprint I mean he was you know presumably trying to reduce his um, competition because in that group Groenewegen Ackerman 
uh, Jakobsen, as I mentioned. But it was a really good edition of that race. And uh, yeah, I think because of the bad weather, made it much less of a kind of one of those ones that you sort of watch through your fingers thinking anything, something bad could happen at any moment. But a bit in common with a couple of years ago when it was held in October as a result of the COVID uh, interruption, the weather was terrible that day and it finished with uh, Eve Lampart winning solo. Um, and that likewise was a really compelling race to watch in bad weather. But when the weather's nice and the wind doesn't blow, I just think that it's like yeah, it's like putting the riders on some kind of bowling alley and seeing which of the skittles stay upright. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. They've been supporting us for the past couple of seasons and they've been in the news a lot in recent weeks because of the situation that arose from the women's Strada Bianca recently when Kristen Faulkner was stripped of her third place for wearing a continuous glucose monitoring device under her jersey. Of course, they're not allowed in competition. Um, First of all, Kristen Faulkner issued a statement saying it was not my intent to violate any rules or gain an unfair advantage. I'm proud of how I race Strada Bianca and I'm extremely disappointed in the UCI's decision. I also hope that one day glucose monitors are allowed in racing. I believe they are a valuable tool for athletes, especially women, to take care of our physical health though that is a conversation for another time. And Super Sapiens also issued a statement in which they urged the UCI to work together with Super Sapiens and others to collaborate uh, establishing data sets and continued scientific learnings with the goal of designing science-based best practices for optimizing nutrition and recovery and mitigating eating disorders. Uh, Strada Bianca, of course, Cecily Utrip Ludwig was elevated to third place. And uh, well, Larry, I wondered if you had a view on whether at some point these devices will be allowed in races. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to say, you know, I, I think one, it's it's a big shame for Kristen Faulkner that uh, she was disqualified. You know, I think she did a great race and, uh, you know, I don't think she meant any harm by uh, wearing her continuous glucose monitor. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see uh, how it goes forward in the future, because if they do change the rule, I think that could change a lot of things. You know, I think you know, right now it's continuous glucose monitors, but uh, I think uh, it'll have more to do with other things. I know, you know, I think one thing they might be working on is like a continuous lactate monitor, which would be really, really interesting. And uh, so I think if they allowed the continuous glucose monitors, they might have to allow the lactate ones too when those eventually do come out. Um, And I think that might be a bit more of a performance advantage. So I don't know if we'll see that being permitted. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting case and it's an interesting topic. But, uh, you know, I think the UCI is probably going to stick to their guns on this one. And unfortunately, I, I don't think we'll see any uh, progression uh, there with that rule. 
Well, no, it was an open and shut case, really, as far as uh, Kristen Faulkner was concerned. Just very quickly, Larry, have you actually had a go with a continuous glucose monitor? Yeah, so um, I've tried uh, the Super Sapiens a few times, actually. Um, and it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, there's like a lot of data that you get out of it. Um, but for me, I've found like, I don't, I've never really had, I guess, good guidance on sort of how to use it or, or what the results mean, because it's really interesting to see, you know, certain things like, uh, maybe, I mean, some things are logical, but if you eat like a couple Haribo, you see a big spike, you know? Um, but the other things that are really interesting is like when you're in training is every hard effort you do, you get a big spike. Um, so it's not just from what you eat, it's from what you do on the bike. And even, you know, I heard a story of another rider I know, he was wearing one and they were at team camp and, uh, right when it was time to have his meeting with all the directors, he had a huge spike on his, uh, CGM monitor, which, you know, is kind of funny as well. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I think there are some uses for it, but, um, was it, was it Dombrowski before he scheduled meeting with, before his meeting with Vino? <laughs> no, actually, it was like a couple of years ago. It wasn't when he was on Astana, but yeah, yeah, so. Well, stress, anxiety does cause those readings to spike. I mean, just before recording our Giro episodes last year when I was wearing the, the device, my, my levels would go up as well. Um, but uh, yeah, full transparency, we are sponsored by Super Sapiens. If you want to find out more about how the system works, go to supersapiens.com. Uh, now, before we push on, the latest episode of the Cycling Podcast Femina is being produced as we speak and will be out very shortly. Orla and Lizzie Banks joining Rose Manley, of course, to recap the uh, recent racing and look ahead to the Cobbled Classics. I've given Orla one name there as if she transcends the need for a, a surname. That's Orla Shenoui, of course. Uh, but the Cycling Podcast Femina will be out very shortly. Well, Lionel, we did. We've already done one podcast this week, haven't we? We did well. We did an Arrive after Milan San Remo, and I promised once we had published Arrive that we would do a much deeper dive into Milan San Remo, a deeper dive of sorts, uh, guided by someone who rode Milan San Remo, the real Milan San Remo at the weekend. A dive so deep you'd need flippers and a snorkel. So that's what we'll proceed to do now with Lucky Larry. Larry, um, I said that I noticed you, you were very much center stage as the race came into the Poggio. You did an expert job of placing your team captain, Benoit Cosnefroy. Let's start at the beginning. Um, I, wanted to, I want you to tell us about your day and maybe go back even further. I mean, Milan San Remo, is it a race that you wanted to do, that you feel you're, you were suited for? I mean, what was the, the sort of the discussion around you and Milan San Remo this year? Yeah, so I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's a really nice race. I like to do it. Um, and now that it ended up, we kind of like rearranged my schedule a little bit. Um, then it was great because like before I was supposed to do Basque Country. And I was like, if I do San Remo and Basque Country, I don't really have much time in between the Giro. So they took me out of Basque Country for the moment. So that's a plus. And then I was happy to do San Remo, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I went there to help Benoit. So I sort of on the team, I've kind of been <clears throat> sort of integrated into Benoit's program. And, uh, for him, like Milan San Remo was like a really big objective. So, um, he and the team like wanted me there, um, which is nice. Uh, and it's a really nice race to do. It's, it's cool. I love racing in Italy. And then it's also, it's close to home and, you know, there's a lot of history behind the race. So, 
Yeah, I, I enjoyed doing the race. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get the result that we came there for. Um, yeah, I guess it just didn't really work out for Benoit in the end. You know, I guess you could see on the Poggio, whether it was down to tactics or legs, you know, it was maybe a little bit of a combination of both. Um, but but yeah, uh, so I guess, yeah, sorry. I mean, before before we talk about the, the sort of key part of the race for as far as Benoit and as far as you were concerned, because I guess your job, just watching the race, I suppose your job was concentrated mainly around Chipres and Poggio. But just take us back to the sort of seeing the atmosphere on the bus. You, It's a very early start for you yeah. guys, isn't it? I mean, what was... What time did you set the alarm? Six forty-five. Wake up! I don't forget that because it's like way earlier. Then you're like, oh god, six forty-five. Are you serious? You know, like, I mean, is that the earliest of the season? No, probably is, isn't it? Uh, I mean, for like maybe a one-day race, yeah. But uh, sometimes in the Grand Tours, you end up having these crazy long transfers, and every once in a while, like I know in the Giro once we had like maybe a five-something a.m. wake up. to do some two-hour transfer after some three seven-hour stages to go for another long stage that we ended up protesting for, you know. But uh, <laughs> that one was earlier. As, as but, you yeah, do, yeah. as you want to do, yeah. Um, and Larry, is is it still enormous bowls of pasta? No, so this is actually something that I, I was wanted to uh, talk about. Was like, so it used to be, you know, you would eat like. I mean, a horse, you know, I, you would just wolf down bowl of pasta. You know, I heard some story about like when they were on BMC, um, Alessandro Balan, like they had some competition of how many plates of pasta they could eat the night before. And I think Balan ate something like seven or 10 plates of pasta, you know? Well, it was like this time we were measuring, you know, our 350 grams of cooked pasta that we got, you know, the night before. So, um, Cycling's definitely changed a lot. You know, we're really a lot more calculated with all the nutrition stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I guess now what they've realized is like just carbo-loading the night before isn't necessarily the answer. Um, you kind of like... You take on a lot more calories during the race, don't you? No, you we, can. We eat, partly we because of nutrition products. more during the race. Yeah. Um, but then also like what they found is that like to store your glycogen stores, you know, like once you stock them up, they're not really going down that much, you know? So like the days before, as long as you're eating like a high carbohydrate diet in the few days leading up to the race, the day before isn't necessarily so crazy important. It's not like you need to eat 12 plates of pasta the night before the race because you had pasta, you know, the couple days before sort of, you know? So we just kind of, I guess, had a higher carb intake the days before, but nothing really crazy. You know, everything now is like super measured. We had like you know, a plan from the nutritionist. And yeah, now we have like food scales at the table and we're weighing everything. Um, so yeah, I think I ate something like 350 grams of pasta uh, the night before, you know, and then, you know, had a sizable breakfast. Um, and then, yeah, like in the race, um, <clears throat> even I, I didn't eat as much as I eat in some other races because our nutritionist said that, uh, um with such a long race, it's also not super intense at the start. Um, that he didn't want like to take the risk of if we tried to fuel up to 120 grams an hour, which is what we would do in like, say a really hard stage of Paranese or something, um, over seven hours, maybe it would cause trouble by the final to digest all that. 
So we were eating between like 60 to 80 grams an hour um, the first two hours and then a little bit more the last four hours. So, um, I mean, pretty calculated. And, yeah. And that, when those first couple of hours of Milan San Remo, there, there are two sort of alternative views of what those hours are like in the peloton. Sometimes you hear, I remember having a conversation with Mark Cavendish and him saying that it's a race where every millimetrical movement counts at some point. It will count seven hours later. So, you know, those those first two hours are important in terms of economy. And yet, on the other hand, we hear things like, I mean, I said last week that Matej Mohoric last year was going around the peloton horse. To his friends, his Slovenian friends, he was making jokes about, you know, whether there were good hospitals in Milan San Remo because he knew the the risk that he was going to take later on. And, and we, you know, we might imagine that it's a fairly sort of uh, a whimsical kind of cruise down across um, the plains of Lombardy and Piedmont towards the coast. And, and it's one of those rare occasions when it is quite relaxed in the peloton. I mean, how did you approach it? And what's the, where does the truth lie, Larry? Yeah, I mean, it's more the second, like it's pretty chill. Um, you know, we don't go very hard until like you get closer to the Turquino. Um, so pretty much the first hours, like the breakaway goes quick. And then the only thing was this year and it's happened like some of the other years is like, there's a little bit of wind, you know, it's like an annoying cross headwind so that like, you're kind of like single or double file in the Peloton. So it's just an annoying pace that like, you can't just ride in the wind and talk to your friends. You know, it's not like the bunch is like one big bubble. It's just kind of like almost single or double file. So at that point, you just kind of stay next to your team and it's a little bit boring. You know, you just kind of sit there and don't really, you just ride and it's not that hard, but like, yeah, it's just like the annoying pace and annoying amount of wind that like, it's not like you're just sitting around chatting with your friends, which happens in some races or if there was like a block headwind that would have happened. But um, yeah, with the wind and stuff, it was just like, in the end, you just kind of sit next to your team and everyone sits there uh, just kind of riding along until the Turquino and then the fight starts and uh yeah it's a fight for position a bit and everyone's throwing elbows a bit and you want to be in good position for the descent and then everyone stops for a pee at the bottom of the descent anyway <laughs> so uh it's kind of a funny race what was the wind like when you got onto the coast we had like a raging tailwind uh so I mean, it wasn't like it was super, super hard or anything, but we were going, I was like, wow, I feel like we're going really fast. And we were just on the flat going through this town and I looked down and we were going 65K an hour. And I was like, okay, yeah, like this is, this is, I mean, it was just super, super fast. Um, so yeah, it was a strong tailwind, I guess. And Larry, it's 294 kilometers it was on Saturday. Uh, it's obviously the by far the longest one-day race of the season. Are you intimidated by that distance in the morning and are riders generally intimidated by that distance, would you say? Um... I think, like, in the past, we've always sort of been intimidated by it. But if you actually look at the amount of, like, work you do in the race in terms of, like, kilojoules and stuff, like it's actually way easier than any other classic. You know, it's like uh, the average watts or something, for example, they aren't super high. Um, it's just, there's two extremely hard efforts right at the end. Um, and that's what makes really the big difference there. 
so yeah, it's not like a Liège or uh, a Flanders or something where it's just super hard the whole day. It's just like there's really two super hard efforts and then a lot of fight for positioning. And we we talked about your role for Cosnefoy. Now I we didn't really talk about Cosnefoy in our preview uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I remembered subsequently that I'd read a, an interview with Benoit Cosnefoy in Velo magazine, in which he talked about what he saw as his biggest forte as a bike rider, his biggest point of difference, distinction, and I think he said something like the two minute efforts, and then sustaining that effort or sort of reaching a plateau and remaining you know on that same high plateau and he sort of said that that was what he'd done he won Montreal last year didn't he Montreal um, in Canada and when Mm. he said that or when I remembered um, that statement I thought okay this is maybe a guy who although he hadn't had good results in San Remo before he's a guy who could do well on the Poggio I mean what was the team plan broadly broadly speaking yes I mean the team plan was sort of like I mean it was definitely watch out for Benoit you know make sure they're in good position but then also Ollie he's been second there before and he showed that he was going really well the last stage Paris Oliver Nelson yeah. yeah and then um Andrea Vendrama had also a bit of a free role um because like he's good at like a punchy sprint kind of thing so um it was like the rest of us <clears throat> were to help and we had two guys for the earlier parts of the race, which were like Jakob Hanninen and Lawrence Nossen. And then it was Stan DeWolf and I um, for sort of like the approach to the Cipressa. And then if we made it over the po- or the Cipressa, you know, before the Pojo. And then, uh, yeah, those guys obviously just <laughs> do their best uh, in terms of like a result. So, um, yeah, that was kind of what happened. The pace on the Cipressa was like high, but not as crazy as last year. Um, so we made it over with, um, I think five guys actually on the team and, uh, yeah. And so then in the end, like, yeah, we kind of, you know, I was going to try to help the guys, but, uh, Benoit was like more comfortable just to follow the leader. So he just stayed on like, uh, Van Art's wheel and then like, um, yeah, in the end, like my job was kind of done and then we hit the bottom of the podio and then that was it, you know? So, uh, and then unfortunately, yeah, I mean, if you watch closely, like he got gapped by Trontine, which I don't know if that was on purpose or he just also was suffering. Um, and then there was like a bit of hesitation. And then that was how those like five, six guys went away and the race was done for at least our team after that. You mentioned the pace on the Cipressa. I mean, that was set by UAE. Were, was there any talk... We, we again, in last week's pod or two weeks ago, we talked about the number of riders who are based in Monaco and riders who sort of practice on the Poggio and practice on the Cipresa, particularly Pogacar. He seemed to have a, a pretty clear plan. When I spoke to him at Paris, he talked about the plan that he had and he'd gone and sort of enacted this plan in training. Um, was there any talk on the grapevine down there on the Côte d'Azur, Larry, on the promenade, you know, where you hang out and in Cannes and places like that, Beaulieu sur mer about <laughs> what UAE and Pogacar were plotting um was there any any surprises for you in what they did try to do no i mean i didn't really hear anything um but i didn't really ask anyone you know uh so but in my head when i kind of watched like what happened last year 
I didn't think they were going to go as full gas again this year because it didn't work last year, you know? So I was like, maybe this year they're going to try a different tactic and maybe their tactic would be to like stay with more guys to the bottom of the Poggio. So in my head, even though that's not like what the team thought or whatever, my personal opinion was that I didn't think they were going to go full up the Cipressa uh, because I think they wanted to have more guys to try to like, you know, stomp uh, the bottom of the Poggio for Pogachar. But in the end... I think they did try to make it hard. I just think they didn't have the guys to make it hard on Chapresa. At least that was like what what it looked like to me, you know. So, Larry, just looking at the well, I think I said in your intro where you came in, Bunoir. I mean, what was the what was the general feeling while I just look at where did he where did he finish? He was twenty second position. He was twenty second. So I guess was there some degree of disappointment about that um, because he he did seem to be on decent form on the day what was the sort of mood like when you got to the bus yeah um i would say the general sentiment was that of disappointment um but like you know why it didn't work out it's hard to say you know like whether it was just legs whether it was the plan of the team um you know i know one thing he wasn't pumped about was that we had to do milano torino and he'd already been on the road from um laguelia and then like Tirreno straight to Milano Torino, which we didn't even have really a sprinter that much. So like, you know, we were just kind of there for a really long time on the road where it's like, you know, I think that's one thing that's a big thing that sometimes we neglect in cycling is like mental freshness is super important too. And that was actually something I wanted to say about the start of San Remo is like, I don't think the physical efforts at the beginning of the race really matter that much, but staying mentally fresh to be able to fight for the finish makes a huge difference. So I think whatever you can do to just stay chill at the start of that race keeps you mentally fresh for the end when you really need to be in the fight. And I guess like if we look at the macro thing, that was kind of like his sentiment was that like, you know, he, he wasn't mentally fresh when he got to the race because he'd been away for so long and like, you know, kind of for like a, I don't want to say worthless race, but for him, maybe he didn't see it as a very valuable race in between. There are two schools of thought on that, though, aren't there, about how you stay fresh. I mean, some people would say that the best way to stay fresh is to stay focused um, and to prevent your mind from wandering. So so maybe if you go into the first, well, the first half of Milan San Remo with clear objectives of, I don't know, where you're going to be in the peloton, how you're going to approach it, etc., etc., um, as against... Um, believing that the best way to stay fresh is to let your mind wander as much as it can in a peloton in a in a big one day race and not to really stress yourself out i i don't know i mean i think we've all had experiences both sides of that coin i always think that you know mountain biking is a great example of this how you can you have to be completely focused if you're riding on a single track or or whatever um but that can be quite sort of refreshing and reinvigorating in itself because you as i say your mind doesn't have a chance to wander i don't know what do you think yeah i mean the thing is a mountain bike race is like an hour and a half you know so it's a bit different uh than yeah. milan san remo which is seven hours you know i think one thing that we really neglect a lot is just that uh, like the fatigue trying to focus for hours and hours on end um, adds to, you know, your physical performance at the end of the race. You know, I think like one thing that like we just neglect quite a lot in racing is that like the physical aspect 
is really impacted by the mental aspect. And uh, if you don't have both together, I guess, if you don't take both into account, I don't think there's any way you're going to perform. So I think that's uh, it's an important thing uh, to remember. Lionel, how did you manage to stay fresh for your 100-kilometer ride on <laughs> well, was we, it Thursday or Friday? Uh, oh, the 100-kilometer ride, well, uh, how did I manage to stay fresh? I just enjoyed it. I mean, we had a, a, a much less of a tailwind compared to the pro riders in the race. I mean, that made it a lot harder for us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just on that point, though, about, you know, Cosnehua, I mean, he would have been away for three and a bit weeks, wouldn't he? from Leguelia through Torino Adriatico, Milano Torino. And I, I, I completely get where you're coming from there, Larry. That kind of, you know, it's, it's going to probably be going to be the last bastion of old school thinking that, uh, I mean, from an athletic, from a sporting and a tactical perspective, is there anything to be gained from Cosnefoy doing Milano Torino a few days before Milan San Remo? No, there really isn't. Um, but there's that sense of it's a race. We've got to field a team. The logistics of uh, changing the team, you know, would they send him home for a week in between? You know, there's still that kind of, I guess, that old school sort of mentality of uh, if the rider's in the hotel, everyone's got their eyes on. There's, uh, you know, I'm not not saying specifically about Cosnefoir, but, you know, sort of, and there's still that sense from management that, um, you know, if the if the riders are around, then they they know what's going on and uh, the sense of togetherness, I suppose. But for the individual, maybe just a little break before the big objective, if it is that much of an objective, might have done him the world of good. Who knows? For sure, yeah. And the other thing is, we didn't do a recon, which everyone knows the roads, but sometimes it can kind of get you into the mindset um, before the race. So. I think that was one thing they thought maybe would be better to do in the future is like instead of doing a race in the middle of the week, just doing a recon instead. And then you're a little bit more relaxed. But yeah. I mean, what a, what a shame. You could have just given me a ring, Larry. I know. The, the, right-hand, turn, the right-hand turn at the bottom of the Chipressa is uh, really, really quite tight. So just try and be at the front <laughs> next time. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, Larry, first monument of the season under your belt. You are at Isola 2000. We talked about that at the start of the show. Just tell me, I was kind of curious, what is the sort of thinking now of you going to altitude? I mean, it's a bit of a, you've kind of finished the first block, haven't you? Um, and is it, a, did you have, have you had a few days of sort of coming down? Is it, a, is it a question of sort of letting go of a bit of the form and the condition to then build up again for the Ardennes, the Jira, just explain sort of conceptually what is the thinking behind spending time at altitude now? Yeah, so, well, I mean, spending time at altitude now is for the Giro, um, but, you know, it also helped me for the Ardennes. So it's just really for, like, the next block of racing. And so I've already done, like, 22 or 23 days of racing this year, which is, like, quite a lot. Um, and so I needed to take, like, a little bit of a break so I took, I was at home for like two days. That's not very long uh, after Milan San Remo. And then I was like, okay, you know, anyway, like the first days at altitude, um, you want to sort of ease into it. So 
I was planned to take, you know, like, yeah, just, I guess a few days off the bike. So I came up here and I've just been like skiing and hanging out in the mountains, um, to sort of just, I guess like, yeah, get a mental refresh. Like we were just talking about, um, before I sort it's of like bleak easel, isn't it? I don't yeah, like, it's besides not. the ibexes. I'll be honest, are, like today was really beautiful. I mean, blue skies. Really? And then honestly, it was nice skiing. It's a bleak climb. It's not oh. a nice climb up to Easel of 2000. Oh, I think the climb is really nice. I just think the village really? kind of sucks. I mean, the village is like ugly and from like the 70s or 80s or just the worst time in terms of architecture and everything. I think there might, uh, um, I think there might be at least, there's at least one bowling alley. I remember that. Um, but it, it is doesn't a pretty, exist um, anymore. It's a prepossessing yeah. looking resort. Oh, okay. That's that. And a discotheque, I'm sure. Um, but no, the climb, uh, you, perhaps you like it because it's kind of an American style climb. It's a big road, isn't it? It's a big, wide road. Yeah, but it's like in the trees. And then, I don't know, it's always changing. It's pretty steep. It's pretty hard. It's, I, I think it's actually a really nice climb. But, but yeah. Okay. So you're up there to get ready for the Giro and you come down in a couple of weeks yeah so i'll try to do three weeks here um so yeah the goal is just essentially to get in as good as form as i possibly can and i know that uh if i do a big block at altitude um that's the best way for me to get into the best form i can be and i think you know that'll help me to be really good in the ardennes and then really help me uh, get ready for the giro so that's sort of like my next big objective um so yeah i think uh it's the best way to get ready and i think it's really now it's almost like a necessity to do if you want to do well in a grand tour um so if you look at any of the guys who've been successful in the grand tours over the last years um and i don't mean just like gc or something i mean like the the guys winning stages everything is uh you know everyone's going to altitude so i think it's just that last few percent that uh if you want to do well it's something you need to do Many guys up there at the moment. I know you're piggybacking Harry Sweeney's Wi-Fi. Yeah, so yeah, we have to, to say Sweeney. thank you to Harry Sweeney for, for allowing me to use his uh, Wi-Fi hotspot <laughs> since uh, my service is not good and the Wi-Fi is not working. Um, so he's up there. Anyone else? So right now there's no one else. I know my teammate Joffrey Bouchard was here last week. And then um, I know that I'll be... Once Harry leaves, I'll be staying with Joe and Will Barda um, after they come back from Catalonia. And then Matteo Jorgensen will come up a little bit after that. So, yeah, I think there'll be a lot of guys uh, rotating in and out of here. And Larry, well, I said it was the first monument of the season done and dusted. I saw you at Paranese, of course. You were you were right in the thick of the action there as well. You were in the break a couple of days. Um, just generally, I mean, we we did a sort of uh an episode where we look forward to the season as a whole and you kind of laid out your goals didn't you but you must be relatively pleased with the way things have started no um you're healthy yeah you looked on I good mean, form you know i think my form is pretty good um you know i would have liked to get a result uh you know it's like it's just all well and good to go on the breakaway but like the objective of going the breakaway is to like win a race or something you know so i wouldn't say i have any results to speak of yet so that's a bit too bad but uh yeah it's it's i've been there and thereabouts and you know i think it'll set me up well for the races to come um but yeah i would say i'm like generally happy with how it's gone but yeah i guess i just i would like to yeah get a result one of these days that's uh that'll be yeah the next step 
in, in the podcast, in the couple of podcasts we did with your friend Joe Dombrowski um, at the end of last year and the start of this year, we talked a lot about the role of luck and particularly for riders like you and Joe, who perhaps, you know, you talk about getting a result. You are kind of, you're opportunists. You're going to be looking for results from breaks most of the time. And I remember the second of those breaks at Paris-Nice to the Côte de la Cuyol, seeing that you got into the break, but then just looking at the names in the group and immediately realizing that you were probably doomed because... David De La Cruz was in the break. Kobe Gosens was in a break. I think Mulberg was in the break. They were all guys who were pretty dangerous on GC. And that just brought home to me uh, how fickle those those occasions are where, you know, someone like you will find yourselves in a break and through absolutely no fault of your own, nothing that you control whatsoever, um, will hinge. That will That's what your success or failure will hinge on. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think like getting a result out of a breakaway has to be sort of like a perfect uh, storm, you know? It's like everything has to work out um, well, you know, who's in it, you know, what like the GC situation is, who has the jersey, things like that, you know? And so, I mean, I think I even told you at the start of that day that like, yeah, I want to go in the breakaway, but I'm almost sure the breakaway won't win today. It's also like that was this really, really hard climb, Um so with the way Pogachar was going, you'd need like at least four minutes on him probably at the bottom to try to win. So, um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's good to get out there. Uh, but yeah, I think it's hard. Uh, but you never know. It's like the first day I was in the breakaway, there was a moment I actually thought we had a chance. And when I went in that breakaway, I didn't actually think we would have any, you know, sliver of a chance. So, um, some days it just works out and you don't know why. And other days you think it's definitely going to work out and it doesn't. So the way the racing's going at the moment, it doesn't really favor riders going in breakaways, does it? Because Pogacar, Vingegaard, uh, Roglic, Evenepoel, they're setting their stall out that they're going to contest for every possible win. I mean, we're already seeing it in Catalonia that, uh, the, the spoils are being shared by a smaller and smaller pool of riders, it seems. Yeah, but better better be in the break than try to hold onto their wheel, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I'm a big I'm a big time bonus propagandist evangelist. Okay. I love time bonuses, but it does kind of doom breakaways. I mean, particularly with the advent of these six second time bonuses at Paris, for example. I mean, they suddenly became uh, a very attractive prize, even yeah. for the even for the GC guys. Yeah, that was a uh... yeah. That was an interesting addition for sure. Um, and Larry, just to, so we talked about your start of the season, um, just to, looking at the team so far, you've had a couple of wins. Uh, Nance Peters won, he won like Guélia, Guélia, yeah. didn't he? And uh, Aurélien Paris-Pintre won a stage of the Tour des Alpes Maritimes et du Var. Um, a couple of other guys going well. Bouchard is climbing pretty well. Ben O'Connor, he and Ben O'Connor are sort of hovering around the top 10 in Catalonia. Um, and you've got the classics coming up. Of course, you've got a big, well, you've got the Belgian um, contingent for the classics. You've got Van Avermaet and Nars and the Nars and Brothers and De Wolf. I mean, what's the what's the feeling generally in the team? And tell us a bit about how you, how, how you kind of sense what the prevailing wind in the team is. You know, do you... Do you feel in the WhatsApp group that the team kind of needs a result and management isn't happy or is happy? I mean, how does that? Yeah, of, I mean, um, I would say like a result would be very helpful. <laughs> um, 
you know, I, I would say the prevailing sentiment or the wind, the wind is stagnant at the moment. And, uh, right. you know, the prevail, you know, it's not, it's not a headwind. It's not a tailwind. It's just kind of like, uh, you know, we're kind of like in the middle, but I think, you know, it can go one way or the other. Like you get one big win and all of a sudden, like everything's great. Um, where if you pass like all the classics and you don't win, um, then we're in trouble, you know? So it's just kind of like, I think we're in sort of this purgatory right now and it could go totally one way or the other. Um, but you know, I, I definitely think like, um, I mean, I hope it'll go well. I think like Ollie was in some of the best form he's been in, in a long time in Paranese. Um, yeah, I think he would have gotten at least a decent result in San Remo, but he broke his chain on the descent of Poggio when he was in the group. Um, so that was too bad. Um, I think, I think he could get uh, a result in one of the classics, whether it's a podium or what. I think that'd be pretty good for us. I think also Stan is knocking on the door. You know, I think uh, in maybe one of the smaller races, he could do something pretty big. Um, and I think he'll be around maybe the top 10 in some of the bigger ones if he has a good day. So that'll be good. And I'm still pretty confident that Benoit will be able to do a big result in one of the Ardennes. Um, and if he does that, then like all of a sudden, like, were golden, you know? So it's just really, um, it's really crazy at, I guess, like how fine the line is between, um, success and failure in the sport. You know, it's like all of a sudden, like you get one big win and you just had an amazing season, you know? So, um, so I wouldn't say we've, we're going well or going poorly. Um, we're just kind of like riding that line right now and, uh, hopefully we'll get a big win to push us in the right direction. I mean, looking at the, the list of winners so far this season, I think UAE team Emirates, Sudal, Quickstep and Jumbo Visma have got 46 wins between them. That's 46 wins between three teams. Uh, wow. I, I guess what you're saying there is, you know, quality, uh, one quality win is probably worth, you know, half a dozen or so smaller wins. So it's that, it's that balance, I guess, between you land a big one and, and you know, the fact that the team has only got two wins so far um, would, would be significantly kind of, you know, relegated in the minds of the, of the team management. But yeah, the, like I say, that trend of just pretty much the three teams dominating does make it hard for everybody else absolutely before we move on i mentioned in saturday's episode of arrive simon gill's fantastic photo of matthew van der poel descending the poggio uh, for me it really was shot of the day a great photo and it summed up the race perfectly didn't it and a few people got in touch with simon asking whether he would make it available as a print and he has done that and you can buy it framed or unframed in a variety of sizes at simongillphotography.co.uk. I'll also put a link to that in our Substack, the 1101 Cappuccino, which will go out a little bit later on this week. And while I'm promoting various things, uh, the Lionel of Flanders is particularly relevant this week with the Grand Prix E3, Gent Wevergem and Dwarsdor Vlaanderen coming up. A few years ago, Simon and I went to Flanders and we made the Friends of the Podcast series, The Lionel of Flanders and it's available to listen to or listen again to if you've already heard it uh, if you want to become a friend of the podcast sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science 
Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our longest term supporters, of course. Science in Sport fueled our ride last week when we took on the final 98.6 kilometres of the Milan-San Remo course between Spotorno and San Remo, taking in the final five climbs, the three Capi, the Cipressa and the Poggio. My bidons were full of beta fuel and around half an hour before we reached the Cipressa, I chomped my way through a beta fuel chew just to give myself that extra burst of energy when I needed it. Now to mark the arrival of the Classics campaign, Science in Sport have started a Strava challenge, the Classic 100, and the challenge is to ride 100 kilometers before March the 31st. So you've still got plenty of time. The challenge ends a week on Sunday and everyone who completes the challenge will get 20% off Science in Sport products at scienceinsport.com and one lucky winner will be in the velodrome to see the finish of Paris-Roubaix. So if you want to be in with a chance of that prize, you need to sign up to the Strava Challenge, the Classic 100, and uh, you can also join the Science in Sport Global Cycle Club on Strava. Now... Much to my annoyance, I realised that my 98.6 kilometre ride, although it got me 98.6% towards the target, it fell outside the qualifying period, which is from March the 18th to March the 31st. We actually rode that just before the challenge began, so I've still got a little bit of work to do. So I need to get a couple of 50 kilometre rides in, or maybe I'll push the boat out and do a 100 kilometre ride at some point in the next couple of weeks. But I fully intend to complete the challenge. Check it out on Strava, and if you want to see the full range of Science in Sport products, go to scienceinsport.com. Our friends at MAP, who are our clothing partner and who designed and made the brilliant cycling podcast jersey, have been asking people to share their goals for 2023. The Progress of Progression campaign is designed to inspire people to ride somewhere different or ride somewhere new. And we've also been asking our listeners to share their goals for the coming year. Now, this week, we received a really moving email from friend of the podcast, Sam Hall. Now, Sam's son, Sepp, died from cancer last year, two months before his fourth birthday. First of all, our heartfelt condolences to you and your family, Sam, for your loss. Now, Sam is going to ride from Helsinki to Epsom, setting off on May the 28th and taking 20 days to ride up and round the corner into Sweden and then down through Denmark, Germany and across Belgium and northern France before the final leg, which he'll do with friends and family from Tunbridge Wells to Epsom on June the 17th. Why is he riding from Finland to Surrey? Well, Sepp's mother is from Finland and Sepp was born in Surrey. So it seems like the perfect stage race to ride in loving memory of his son. But there's also a serious point to the ride too, because the cycle for Sepp will also hopefully raise £50,000 for the Momentum Children's Charity. Sam writes, believe it or not, Sepp's name took inspiration from the cycling podcast. We were struggling for names knowing it was a boy when I heard an interview with Sepp Kuss on the pod circa summer 2018. The better half liked it and the rest is history, he says. Well, I think that's a fantastic ride to aspire to and, well, very meaningful. And I'm sure the memory of your son will be with you all the way, Sam. I wish you much luck, not just with the ride, but also with raising money for the Momentum Children's Charity. If anyone out there wants to donate to that charity, go to supersep.muchloved.com. Well, Lionel, earlier in the pod, I called you our de facto Cobble Classics correspondent. 
um, delegate reporter. Um, we've already well, we've, we've we've started the classics campaign, the Cobble Classics campaign, haven't we? Really, with the Panda today. I mean, well, you could say we started a few weeks ago with Omlu, but this is where it really gets serious this weekend, isn't it? What we got? What have we got coming over the next few days, Lionel? Well, we, as I said, we've got the Grand Prix E3 on Friday. Uh, we've got the Ghent Wevelgem on Sunday, then Dwarsdorf Vlaanderen on Wednesday, and then the big one, the Tour of Flanders on Sunday. That's the big week of Flemish classics. And then, of course, hot on the heels of the Tour of Flanders is Paris-Roubaix, and that really does bring the curtain down on the cobbled classics. But yeah, this is the big fortnight, isn't it? And what are we all looking forward to? What are going to be the big themes, the big talking points of this classic season? I mean, today I thought we found out a little bit more about what we can expect from Sudal Quickstep. Obviously, at this time of year, um, they're, they're the main team in the spotlight as far as a lot of people are concerned. Um, there's always some kind of drama or there's, there's a anxiety I think in Belgium and in the team because the expectation is that they are going to be the number one team and they're going to bring home at least one or two of the big classics this year I think the general feeling also based on performances so far is that they might be missing a, uh, a leader uh, a sort of a talismanic figure and maybe a, a fast finisher in particular we saw today um, Eve Lampard was really well he brought a water pistol to a gunfight, didn't he, against the likes of Coy and Philipson. And I don't know, chaps, what you think. My sense is we might see that scenario um, playing out in a few of these cobbled classics over the next couple of weeks. What do you think? Just going into this like cobbled classic season, I just think it's really hard to look past uh, Vanderpool and Van Aert. And I, I, you know, I, I just think like no matter how good of a team like Quickstep has, it's going to be really hard to beat those guys. Yeah, I think that's right, Larry. I mean, the resumption of the battle between Van Aert and Van der Poel is uh, going to be the story of the next couple of weeks because they could, between them, win all of these races. And uh, then it's going to be about who gets in there and disrupts that head-to-head battle. I mean, Tadej Pogacar is going to ride some of the cobbled classics. Sudal Quickstep have got Julian Alaphilippe and Kasper Askelin as their kind of most likely riders, but they've not had the ideal spring so far, although Alaphilippe was, uh, well, he's, he was, as we said in Arrivé, Daniel, he was out of position a couple of times in Milan San Remo, but got himself back into contention and got a decent result. And uh, then it's, you know, it's it's the, the usual suspects, isn't it? I mean, um, the thing is that the, the Grand Prix E3 Saxo Classic, as it's now called, is the one that's kind of the de facto pre-tour of Flanders warm-up, isn't it? It's the one they take more seriously these days than than uh, Ghent Wevelgem. And we'll probably learn an awful lot more on Friday about how things are going to shape up. We'll maybe see one or two other names sort of put themselves into contention. But I think, as you say, it's the Van Aert, Van Der Poel um, battle that's going to have everybody watching, certainly... E3, Flanders and Roubaix, where they'll go head to head. 
Yeah, I mean, that said, we know the sort of tectonic plates uh, of this this aspect of professional cycling, the, the classics landscape, they can they can shift pretty quickly. I mean, this is such a short space of time. You're from, I mean, every year I feel like I forget how close together races like Ghent, Vavigan and Paris-Roubaix are. You know, in, in hindsight, in retrospect, it seems as though this period lasts forever. But actually, when you're in the thick of it, it comes and goes very quickly. And we can get to the end of the classic season and completely new names can have emerged as the guy. You know, we were talking a few weeks ago about Arno De Lee. I was talking about him potentially winning Milan San Remo. I mean, in three weeks' time, we could be talking about him as the budding Van der Poel or the budding rival to Van der Poel or Van Aert. And, you know, there are other riders who... Really curious to see over the next few weeks. You know, Matej Mohoric is a guy who, up until last year, I would not have had down as a classic specialist, as a cobbled cobble classic specialist, but he was very much in the thick of it last year. Um, could have won Paris-Roubaix if things had gone slightly differently, and he's going to be back there. And, you know, Bahrain are a team that seem to have numbers at the front of every important race, whether it's a stage race, a mountainous... Um, on mountainous terrain or in the classics, you know, Fred Wright is still chasing his... Larry thinks Fred Wright's my favourite rider. That's not necessarily the case, Larry, because I'm I completely impartial as a that, journalist. Yeah. Just because I spoke to Fred Wright a lot of the Vuelta a España last year. Um, but Larry, undeniably, Fred Wright is a guy who is going to be a factor in the classics. He's a very strong boy. Um, he was excellent in Tour of Flanders last year. And, and who knows... He's, this elusive first win that he's been chasing could come in a big race in the next couple of weeks. Do you not agree? Very possible. It's very possible. There you go. There he, you go. he is a good player. Larry, anything else that you, anything else we should be watching? Maybe in your team. I mean, you've got the old, the golden oldies of Belgium. I can say that. You probably can't say that. Um, go on, the Rolling Stones. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's going to be tough. Yeah, tough for Greg because he got uh, the flu. Um, like the week of San Remo. So, um, you know, that's the only thing uh, I think is going to be a bit tough for our team. So, but maybe we'll see uh, some of the other guys. We actually, one guy that I think will be really good um, is we have this kid who's like 19 years old. Um, his name is Pierre. Uh, wow, how can I forget his last name? Oh, uh, wow, yeah, I forgot his last <laughs> yeah. name. His friend's birthday is Pierre. But uh, his name's oh, Pierre. Gosh, that's terrible. Um, okay. Gotarat, Gotarat, Pierre Gotarat. And uh, he's already, he's gotten a few top tens. He stagiared at the end of last year. He's like, you know, a second year under 23. And the kid is a machine. Um, he maybe doesn't have the endurance yet, but this kid's going to win a big classic um, sometime in the next few years. So I think he'll do one or two decent results in some of the races this year, uh, but he'll be someone From to look out for. Seven, He's seventh, really, really good. Seventh in Le Samin and uh, ninth in Cholet. So, yeah, yeah two, like two really reasonable results already, yeah. Yeah, he's had a good start to the season. Um, from Colmar in the Vosges in Alsace, a new name to me as well, Larry. Only just turned 20. Um, yeah. Yeah. He, he's he's legit he, he's just like super motivated and super excited to be everywhere uh and so yeah i think uh larry before we recorded the podcast i think he'll be today, one I, was, to watch. I was rubbing my hands at the idea the notion that at some point in your long and distinguished career you'd been sent you'd been dispatched to the classics the cobble classics in punishment for something 
Um, but it doesn't appear to have been the case. You don't seem to have done it. Surely, no, you know, the really. three days of West Flanders or something along those lines. I mean, that should be a rite of passage for everyone. No, I did have to do Nokura one year, uh, and then I was supposed to do Hanzam, but it how snowed, did, so Hanzam was cancelled. Um, well, it also snowed there, so I didn't enjoy it very much. But I did see a guy run into a snowbank and crash, so that was a, a first for me, and the only time I've seen that in a bike race. Um, it was hatred, yeah, hatred wasn't at first really sight the with the most enjoyable classics. race I've done, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? I, I actually, I was talking to some of the guys um, on the team and I was like, I actually would like to do, you know, like Flanders once, maybe do like E3, something like that. I think I really like doing like the hilly cobbled races. I think actually like when there's a hilly cobbled stage in a race, I enjoy it, you know? Um, and I think it's something I'm not that bad at. So it's something I wouldn't mind dipping my toes in um, would it be one time to before say the end of my career those races have become a lot um, should we say less unpleasant or palatable for a right well no, no i'm no purely, i'm sure purely from, for, I'm for sure someone who's still not just as unpleasant terrain yeah. and, and those road surfaces in particular um the equipment you have now, the much wider tires, lower air pressures. Does it? I would, I would suggest that it's probably less of a of an absolutely sort of teeth chattering, um, appalling I mean, this experience. Is, this is nonsense. Absolutely. Well, nonsense. is it? Well, then it then it was then it was once upon a time. No, I, I think I think the only difference, I think the only difference is. Climbers are realizing that they can also do well in those races, and that's why we're seeing all these guys go to the races. Because like, it used to be like, oh, you have to be a big guy to do the cobbles, and now people are realizing like, no, if you're strong, like it doesn't really matter what the terrain is, like you can do well in any Larry, race. You did do the under twenty three Paris Roubaix in two thousand and ten. Do you remember anything about that? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't finish the, I, I, I remember, well, the funny thing is I wasn't supposed to do it. And the night before someone got sick and we were sitting in the, I was sitting in the kitchen of like the under 23 national team house. And they're like, oh, well, we don't have anyone. Like, do you want to do it? I was like, well, not really, but I guess, I mean, <laughs> I'll go, you know, like I, I might as well give it a try. And uh, yeah, I didn't enjoy that it very much, so. I don't really want to that do the real year, Roubaix. Taylor Finney won it. Jens de Boucherlo was second. Tim de Klerk seventh. And uh, Eve Lampart, 44th. So, uh, you know, yeah, pretty decent. Yeah, pretty decent riders in that. And you're on a sort of training block now at altitude. But how much time will you set aside in order to watch these races over the next couple of weeks? Will you, you know, try and have an easy day on the big race day so you can be in front of the TV? I mean, I'll never like change my training plan for it, but I'll definitely try to be in front of the TV whenever I can. You know, I really enjoy watching those races. So, and I mean, usually they finish at a good hour. So usually you're done with training by then, even if you have a long day. Well, chaps, I think that just about concludes our entertainment today in the podcast. Um, lots of entertainment to come in the classic season, of course, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Line off, we got, we haven't got an Arrive this week, have we? No, we haven't got an Arrive this week. That will return with the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. Uh, there'll be men's and women's episodes for those classics, and I think also for Liège, Bastogne-Liège at the end of the Spring Classics campaign. Just one last thing, I suppose. It's uh, Is it going to be the last hurrah for a few riders in the Cobble Classics this year? Can we, well, 
Alexander Kristoff or Peter Sagan or uh, Zdenek Stibar, will they pull off one last glorious day before uh, the twilight of their career? Or perhaps Greg Van Avermaet hasn't won a race since 2019. Maybe this is the spring to be back on the top right. step of the podium. Uh, my tip for the for the spring is I think Philippe Ogana is going to win Paris-Roubaix this year. That's my that's it's my his, neck on the chopping board. It's his big board. goal. It's his big goal for the season. To hit that and the World Time Trial Championships are his big goals for the season. Milan San Roman was a bit of a, an afterthought. Um, he only decided to do it after things went pretty well for him at Tirreno, I believe. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. I can't see it in Napalm. Uh, coming back to my my very good point about equipment, I think a rider like Ghana, who is a bit of a... Um, well, he's, he's a bit agricultural... Um, over cobbles or he might be I would suggest that him on I don't know some 19 millimeter rims or whatever they used to ride back in the day um, <laughs> would have struggled more than he will on 30 millimeter rims <laughs> and 30 millimeter I mean, tires this this is this is proof that your this running is, career has uh, completely you know completely deadened any knowledge of cycling whatsoever <laughs> <Yeah>. absolute <laughs> fag packet Classics punditry. Um, anyway, Charles, on that. Very polite of Larry not to not to tell you what a fool you are. There, yeah, but, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Well. <laughs> on, on that indecorous note, I think we will say goodbye to Larry. Larry, wish you a very happy time at altitude. Um, send us some Ibex pictures if you come across any. And then we, okay, if we do. don't speak before, Thanks, no, we guys. will speak to you. Larry, we're going to try and get you on during, before, or just after the Arden Classics because. Um, I'm sure you will have some insight that you'll be able to give us from those races. Um, and we'll definitely, definitely be seeing you and hearing from you a lot at the Giro. So, Larry, good evening and thank you. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you later. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.